Okay, we're going to now get into the book of Galatians. We had some problems with the uh, live streaming, and so uh, this is just going to be a recorded version. It'll be edited and put up later. But we are in Galatians. We're in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. So let's see here. Um, I'm going to go back and just start from the beginning of Galatians, and that way we have the context. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And then verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, here are my comments on that. Paul here makes his usual apostolic greeting, which is found, for example, in Romans 1.7. Okay, grace is the blessing poured out from God on those who are undeserving of his favor. Grace is getting what you... Do not deserve. That's correct. Instead of judgment and wrath, we are lavished with his goodness and abundance. This is the standard Greek greeting one might expect at the time of Paul. Okay, grace, they would say grace to you, and that was what they said in the Greek Empire, okay, or when they spoke in Greek. Peace, on the other hand, is fullness of everything that is needed to be satisfied in all way. It is a request for healing, filling of every need, and even abundance. It would be the standard greeting of the... Jews that one would expect at that time. They would say, the Greek would say grace, and the Jews would say peace or shalom. The Hebrew word which Paul would have on his mind would be the word shalom. In Greek, it is erini, okay? The term from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ means that these blessings come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from both. God is the source of all things. Christ is our mediator. If one thinks of a stream of water, it doesn't matter if the water comes right from the well which bubbles from the ground or from some point down the river. In both, the same water is drunk. If the well is by itself inaccessible, the stream is there still bringing it to us. This is how it is for us spiritually. Christ is the one who makes the abundance and blessings of God possible for us to enjoy. It is of note that despite the upbraiding that Paul is going to give the Galatians because of their straying from the truth, he still takes the time to pronounce this blessing upon them. It is certain that his pronouncement is actually intended as a way of preparing the way for them to receive and accept the truth of his coming words. Life application here, even if we have to hand out discipline, we can still pronounce a blessing as well. Paul's example is one we should take to heart in such delicate in difficult times. And as we talked about last week, these are delicate and difficult times for Paul because he's got to talk to a church that started out well, started out with the gospel, and have now gone into legalism and basically today's Hebrew roots movement. And that's what's happening. And so he's still taking the time to wish them grace and peace. So verse one, four, who gave himself, I'll go back and read three so you understand what he's talking about. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Okay? The opening clause of this verse lays out the tone for all of the rest of the epistle. It is the very thing which those in Galatia had forgotten, or who had intentionally set aside. They were given the gospel, and then along came the Judaizers, think of Hebrew roots people today, who are intent on watering it down through a works-based religion. This is contrary to what God has set forth as being pleasing to him. It was Christ who gave himself for our sins. As this is so, 
then what could be added to that? If Christ has given himself for our sins, then that is how our sins are atoned for, right? I mean, he's being obvious right at the beginning. He's setting the parameters of everything he's going to talk about. Adding in works of our own of any kind in an attempt to cover our sins is thus contrary to the gospel of Christ. This is repeated numerous times in the New Testament. But several examples of note are found. I'm going to take you to Matthew. I know it's a different dispensation, but we're going to go to Matthew chapter 20, and we want to go to verse 28. And it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, he is paying the penalty. Romans 8.32 then says, Romans Burke is over there saying it already. <laughs> Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Okay, and then in 1 Timothy 2, we're going to go there really quickly. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to in due time. And then finally in Titus 2.14, he says, Timothy, Titus 2.14. We're going to get there. Here we are. 2.14, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself his own special people zealous for good works. Okay, so those are a couple of the examples which are found interspersed all the way through the New Testament. Christ is the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the only one who could ransom us from the world of sin, and he is the only one who has redeemed us to God. If you want to fall back into Old Testament symbolism, you'll observe the Day of Atonement. You know, I went to that Messianic uh, synagogue out there on Swift some years ago. And they were there on the Day of Atonement. And they were doing all this Day of Atonement stuff. What did the Day of Atonement look forward to? Christ. That's all it looked forward to. Okay? The same thing with any of the sacrificial system of the book of Leviticus. And also, you'll see some in Numbers. Whatever. It all looked forward to Christ. It is all fulfilled in Christ. Why would you go back and do that? And to say that you need to observe this or this or this or this from the Old Testament, when they don't even have a sacrificial system for it, makes no sense at all. But this is what people are trying to do to the believers in Galatia. It's what people are doing to this day all over the world. Sergio last week uh, said that he was given a Bible. It was a uh, Bible translated by some Jewish guy, and he was going to return the Bible to its uh, true original meaning so that the people could read it. And as he was looking through it, I said, uh, what does it say in Jeremiah 31? Because Jeremiah 31 says what? Behold, I will establish a covenant. new covenant. Not just a covenant, but a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And these people that say, uh, they get to that verse, you know, these supposed rabbis and messianic rabbis and stuff, and they will say that the word means to refresh. It's not really a new covenant. It's a refreshing of the old covenant. And then in the New Testament, they use this same type of just terminology which is incorrect and they say this is what it actually says well you know people get swayed by this type of stuff when they are people that want to put you back under the law they want you to observe the law of Moses etc etc and so they use these terms and they tell you and you think that they're specialists and they're taking you back to what's true when in fact it's not true at all it's completely heretical but you got to be careful of those type of things anyway 
read that again. He's the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Day of Atonement is done. It only pictured Christ. He's the only one who could ransom us from the world of sin, the ransom payment, the uh, silver money that they paid back in the uh, book of Numbers, okay? It was just a picture of Christ. Everything was a picture of Christ. He's the only one who has redeemed us to God. We just saw that in these verses. He said it. Paul said it. He said it three or four times, okay? When we fall back on the law, which was given to us to show our sinful state, that's all the law was for, was to lead us as a tutor to Christ and to show us how utterly sinful sin is, then we reject the very sacrifice which has redeemed us from that law. If you are going to go back to the law, you've rejected the only thing that has actually redeemed us from that law. You have become a debtor to the whole law, as you'll see when we get later into the book of Galatians, and you're obligated to the whole law. It is a self-condemning act, okay? I, I say it right there. It's a self-condemning act. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he wasn't saying it is partially fulfilled, and so keep working hard. You might make it to heaven someday. That is not what he said. Rather, he indicated that all was complete, and all sin debt was satisfied through his work. Everything that Jesus Christ did was so that he, as Paul says, might deliver us from this present evil age. Further, it was a voluntary act. He gave himself. Therefore, if it was insufficient to save, then it was a horrific waste. When a person jumps on a grenade in order to save his friends, the intent is to fully save them. If he and those he tried to save died, then the death was futile indeed, right? You jump on a grenade in order to save your friends and they end up dying anyway, then you wasted your time and they died. If Christ came to die for our sins and we die anyway, then Christ died for nothing. If we have to go back to the law in order to do something that Christ didn't finish, then Christ died for nothing. That's the point there. But if the friends are saved, then the purpose for his death was met. If Christ died on the cross of Calvary to save his people, but failed to save them, then what a waste. However, if he did accomplish this as intended, then for us to say, I still need to do something, is to reject the very thing that he did. Okay, let's think it through. We've got the guy throws in the grenade, and it explodes and it kills the guy, and you say, wait a minute. That, that wasn't sufficient. Throw in another grenade so that I can do it myself. That's exactly what you're doing. Okay, and then you can throw yourself on the next grenade and you can kill yourself because that's exactly what's happening there. Christ did everything necessary to save us. And if it wasn't everything necessary to save us, then there is no salvation. Zero. Okay, the reason I'll read it again. The reason for his death was to save us from our sins. And the object of that salvation was that he might deliver us from this present evil age. If we are in this present evil age, even now, then his death must have had an effect of saving us through the entire age. If not, then he would save us and pull us right out as soon as he saved us, right? If Christ came to save us and he saved us and it was only temporary and we had to continue doing something or if we could lose our salvation, then he would say, okay, I saved them. I'm going to bring them out right now because there's a chance that they could lose his salvation or they wouldn't work hard enough to keep the salvation or something like that. However, if we are still here, and thus we are to trust that his salvation has accomplished what it was intended to do, then that's what we need to do, is to trust it. If we continue adding works into our life in order to be pleasing to God, even to be saved, 
then we do not believe that what Christ did was really sufficient to save us in the first place. Everybody got that? It's a very important point that we need to remember. If Christ was sufficient for us, but we could lose our salvation, then he would have yanked us out of here so that that would not happen. Okay? But if it is sufficient for us, then we need to just trust it all the way through to the end. He did everything necessary, and he really is qualified to save us, and what he did is sufficient to save us. Finally, Paul says that this work of the Lord was according to the will of our God and Father. The Bible's goal from the very beginning is to show God's plan of salvation for man. Just after the fall, the Messiah was promised. The coming of Messiah then is a pre-planned course of action to redeem man from his fallen state. If the work of Christ wasn't sufficient to do that, then not only was he a failure, but the God from whom he came was also a failure. Everybody got that? He said right back in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a redeemer. He's going to get us back into the Garden of Eden someday. He's going to restore us to a right relationship with them. If what Christ did to save us was a failure, it means that God who developed the plan all the way at the beginning was a failure as well. What does it say in Revelation 13 verse 8? It says, Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. God is not a failure. Jesus Christ is not a failure and salvation is eternal. There's no other way around it without saying that something which is totally contrary to the message of the Bible. People want to believe that you can lose your salvation. You hear it all the time. They can believe it all they want. I am going to trust in Christ, and I'm going to rest in Christ, and I'm not going to have anybody trying to tell me that there's something that I didn't do in order to be saved because I know he did it all for me. Rather, the work of Christ is wholly sufficient to save in and of itself. Anything added to it is an attempt to reconcile ourselves back to God, is to reject the entire plan of God. Either the law is fulfilled or it is not. If it is, then it is set aside. If it is set aside, then Christ's work on our behalf is solely of grace, solely of grace and grace alone. Life application, trust in the grace of Christ alone. Simple enough, one five. Okay. To whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Okay, that's kind of a short little verse there. This doxology, which is affixed to his greeting and blessing, is unique to Paul's epistles, and it shows us what is on his mind. He is affixing it here for a specific reason. It is a continued rebuke to the Galatians for their having departed from the truth of the gospel. In Romans 1, he uses a similar line of thought in connection with the negative comments on those who pervert the natural order of things from the truth of God's revelation. We'll go back to Romans 1, and I'll read that to you there. Romans 1, and it's verses 24 and 25, where he says, Therefore God also gave them up to cleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the natural order of things in Romans 1, 24 and 25. And then the words which precede this thought were, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This is the revelation of God to us in all spiritual matters that Jesus Christ came to give himself for our sins. And because of this, Paul says, to whom be glory 
There's an article in the Greek before glory. I wish these translators would put the articles in when it's a definite article. So you can have an article that's indefinite. We have it all the time in English, like a, uh, right? A, there's a byte there. But when you have a definite article, when they don't put it in there, then you don't really know what's on the apostle's mind. Okay, so there's some scholars would say it should read to whom be the glory. However, the pulpit commentary takes it a step further and says, when the article is attached, it marks the noun as expressing its notion viewed absolutely in its entirety or universality. Whatever glory is to be ascribed anywhere, be it ascribed to him. Thus, e-doxa is equivalent to all glory. Okay, so we'll read that again. It says, the uh, where were we? One, five, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. If that's correct, that's fine. If not, then it should at least say, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One way or another, when they put these definite articles in there and the translators do not put them in the translation, it's a real problem, at least to me. If you want the proper translation of the Bible, Old Testament and New, then I'm saying this is probably as close as you can get to a literal translation of the Bible. Get Young's literal translation of the Bible. You can read it right online. You don't need to buy it. You can, uh, you know, Young's is, uh, what do you call it, public domain and he always adds in the proper articles. I mean, sometimes in the Old Testament, he'll forget one before the word God or something, but he is as close to, as a literal translation as you are going to get, is Young's literal translation. It's very hard to read, don't get me wrong, so you want to have another Bible there with you so you can see the differences, but he is spot-on translation. Young's is the by far best translation that I know of as far as being literal. Okay, literal doesn't always mean best though, because then you might not understand what's being said. It's so literal that it's hard to grasp. But if you just want to know the literal translation, get Young's and you will do well. Okay, uh, from what we just said there, speaking of equivalent to all glory, this then is a refutation of the Judaizers who had come in and attempted to reintroduce the law as a requirement for salvation. If this is so, then Christ's fulfilling of the law on our behalf was insufficient to save. Thus he is not to be ascribed all glory or the glory. Instead, some of the glory belongs to us because we participate in the salvation, right? Everybody got that? We don't get any of the glory. We get zero of the glory. Christ did the work. We simply receive it, and that is it. Instead, some of the glory belongs to us because we participate in our salvation, this is refuted by Paul. To God and to him alone belongs the glory. Okay, David understood this when he wrote these words way back in 1 Chronicles. Okay, David wasn't alive at the time of 1 Chronicles. It's a chronicle of what uh, about David's life. But 1 Chronicles, and we're going to go to chapter 29 and verses 10 and 11. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. All right, and this glory, which belongs to God alone, is forever and ever. That's Paul's words there. The Greek is literally unto the ages of ages. It is a Hebraism which denotes an infinite amount of time 
and which is indefinitely multiplied. There is no end to the glory of God. To solidify this, he ends with amen, or so be it. Paul is adamant that there is no participation by us in our salvation. It is a work of God alone, and we can only ascribe to him that glory forever. Life application, if you believe that you must adhere to any point, any point in the law, meaning the law of Moses, in order to be saved or to keep being saved, you have been misled. If you teach this point to another, you become a heretic. You're not a heretic until you start teaching it, but once you start teaching heresy, you are a heretic. So don't be a heretic. Teach the truth of God in Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law, and only through his work can we be saved. Okay, yes. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Hey, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my, my glory, glory to, to another. another. That's right. And I always use that as a source proving that Jesus is God, because when he says, I will not give my glory to another, which he says a couple times in the Old Testament, and then he says in John 1, 14, what? We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, if he's not giving his glory to another, and then the whole New Testament gives glory to Jesus Christ, right. then either the Bible is a book of contradictions, or Jesus is the Lord incarnate. Yes. Okay, he is Jehovah incarnate. One plus one will always equal two in proper theology. That's correct. So, we have that. We don't need anything else in order to be saved. And when I said, where was that? Just back up a little bit. Um, uh, ages of ages, it denotes an infinite amount of time and which is indefinitely multiplied. Okay. I was watching one of the um, uh, Genesis, is Genesis history um, series on YouTube. I just take the little short ones. I don't watch the long movies because they're just too long, but they cut them up into little pieces so you can watch parts of the individual movies. And I was watching one a day ago about DNA. And the DNA, of course, we uh, know because the DNA people found these strands of DNA and they know that this works here and they know that this works here and that this works here. But everything else is called, they have a term for it. It's, it's old DNA. Nobody uses it anymore, right? It's called junk DNA. You've heard the term before, right? Junk DNA. It's But we evolved out of that. We don't need it anymore. And come to find out that they made an error. And one of the people actually admitted, he said, if we had thought this through properly 10 years ago, we would have been infinitely far ahead in our understanding of DNA. But they just assumed that it's all junk DNA because it doesn't do anything. But DNA is not just one-dimensional. It's not just two-dimensional. It's not just three-dimensional. You got the, the we'll call it the two-dimensional string of DNA, right? This long string of DNA. But what happens is the DNA folds in on itself like this, okay? It's a long string and it just goes in and it folds in. And that's a three-dimensional DNA. But when it folds in on itself, every point where it touches becomes coded information that produces a different effect. So there's no junk. It's all actually coded. But it has to be in a certain position in order to code. And when that coding is done and when the thing is produced, it then unfolds itself again. And if it folds in a different way, you'll get new information. And that's why our body can come out of this teeny little thing, this big, come, come into a body with a nose and eyes. And all of these different things occur because the DNA, there's no junk in it. It's all pre-programmed to do different things. And any time you take this DNA and you fold it in a different way, an infinite number of ways, you will have an infinite number of new coding information. But there's a fourth dimension to it, which is time. Time, as this gets older, the DNA will change and it will actually continue to evolve, not the word evolve in 
changing, I'm talking about evolving in what it produces, okay? Not evolution, but evolving in what the original intent was for. So you've got the three dimensions and then the fourth dimension is time. As time goes by, this will do new coding information. It's something we can't even comprehend, and yet it does this. And this is one strand of DNA which can give us an infinite amount of information. And we wonder how is God gonna keep us happy for eternity? When we have one strand of DNA that can do things we can never, ever imagine. And we worry that God can't keep us happy, that we're not going to be forever and ever wondering at the majesty of God. There you go. Think of it. So um, don't worry about it when you wonder if you're going to have something to do forever. You will. And not only do, but you will be amazed in the doing of it. Because sometimes just looking at God and learning what he knows is enough to satisfy it is doing all by itself we will for eternity and no matter how much we know for <coughs> forever and ever and ever and ever it will still be infinitely less than what God knows because God is an infinite and we are finite so we can learn forever an infinite amount of time and still be infinitely less intelligent than this creator don't worry about the future he's got it all figured out okay amen to that Okay, verse 6. I marvel, here it is. This is where it all starts to go wrong. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. After his opening blessing, Paul jumps immediately into the meat of the matter. There is no delay. There's no beating around the bush. Rather, his words are direct and are intended to show the immense dissatisfaction that he has with the Galatians. According to Vincent's word studies, the words I marvel are often used by Greek orators of surprise at something reprehensible. They are used by Jesus in this way in Mark 6. So let me take you to Mark 6. And let's see here what Mark, Jesus says in Mark 6. Mark 6, verse 6. He says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Mark 6, 6 mirrors what Paul is saying right here. They're marveling at this. It's something that is reprehensible. Next he says that you are turning away. The word for turning implies a transfer in the middle of something and carries the specific idea of going over to another party as a deserter. So you're a traitor to your country. That's what Paul is speaking about here. They are traitors to Christ. They are traitors to the gospel that they had already received. Okay, you move into a country, you get the green card, and eventually you become a citizen. And then you are a traitor to that alliance. And people look at you with shame, at least they used to. Nowadays they applaud you. But this is what Paul is saying. These people have become traitors to Christ. The Galatians have begun to apostatize from the true faith. The tense of the verb shows that it is in the process of occurring. The King James Version says that ye are so soon removed. Thus, it misses the sense of the verb, which is the ongoing nature of what is occurring. They are in the process of being deluded. Continuing with his words, the New King James Version says that they are turning away so soon. It's Paul's word, so soon. The word means quickly rather than after a short time. Okay, so what that means is they're turning away from Christ, and they're not just doing it slowly. They're not being seduced slowly. They're very quickly accepting this false gospel which has been presented to them. Okay, the Galatians made a sudden change in direction from where they were heading to where they are now heading. 
Okay, and this is the kind of thing that you will see in churches at times. You'll see a church that is going along in one direction, and all of a sudden, the pastor will say, we are now taking a new direction, and the entire theme of the church changes very quickly. I've heard of this happening. I've not seen it personally, but I've heard of pastors where they suddenly flip out and they get into some crazy doctrine, and all of a sudden they go from this to this overnight. It's They get something in their head, and that, where does that come from? It comes from not being properly trained in theology in the first place. They're running ahead. They're being put into pastoral positions when they're not properly trained in the Bible and Scripture and the Word of God. And then something comes along and says, oh, I never thought of that without thinking of all of the options. And next thing you know, he's going off on this tangent. And the whole church is led astray. That's what's happened to these people right here. This explains the astonishment of Paul. He had probably heard that things were going along well at some point in the past. And then all of a sudden, he hears that they have started down another completely new avenue. The certain explanation for this is that they have been misled by a new and unsound doctrine. This will be confirmed as the chapter continues, but it is the same thing that happens constantly in churches around the world. Some person comes in with a false message, and because the people don't know the word, they are easily misdirected from the truth of him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, here we have a body known as the Episcopal Church. I grew up in it, you know, out on Siesta Key, and we just, that's the church that was in town that was either that or there was the uh, Catholic Church down the way, and we were not Catholics, and so we went to the Episcopal Church. And while we were there, there was no real Bible taught. They may have referred to the Bible, probably the Gospels, you know, you might have heard that Jesus fed 5,000 or something in a sermon, but there was no real Bible theology. There was no Bible studies where you would sit down and get into the Word of God. Okay, and all of a sudden things started to change, as we know, in the Episcopal Church. It went from one thing to another thing within a very short amount of time. That's because the people didn't know the word in the first place. And so if you get somebody in there into the hierarchy that says, oh, it's okay to have homosexuals, or oh, it's okay to ordain women, or it's okay to do this or that, all of a sudden these things come into play. And the people don't know any better. What? It takes one person to do that. It takes one, one, one person. That's exactly right. Just one shepherd is all it takes, and it is done. She knows because she was at the church, and that's my mother. And so she saw it happening, and all of a sudden, it. it but what happens is, because the Episcopal Church is a, den a denomination rather than just a single church, is that these people creep in, and they appoint people in other places, and they get them into the established positions before they make the big move with the denomination and all of a sudden the whole denomination swings over with it one church may be here one church may be here and they're falling away and others are holding fast but eventually the whole thing goes and it goes very quickly that's what we see in schools we've got these people that these communist people that have gotten into the grade schools and into the high schools and then into the colleges and they run the education system now they very slowly crept in and a little bit of yeast as paul says in the whole loaf is leavened. doesn't matter if it's school, it doesn't matter if it's a church, the same thing happens. When you get aberrant ideologies in, it gets in there and it affects everything and all of a sudden it changes. So there you go with that. But um, let me go back and read what I just read so you know what the context was. We're in verse 1-6. Some person comes in with a false message and because the people don't know the word, they are easily misdirected from the truth of him who called you in the grace of Christ. Um, let's see here. This is speaking of God the Father, who is mentioned in verse 4. Therefore, the word in should be translated by. In other words, 
Christ is the immediate agency by which God's grace is bestowed upon sinners. As Charles Ellicott notes, the grace of Christ is his voluntary self-surrender to humiliation and death from no other prompting than his own love for sinful men. Okay, that's Charles Ellicott's words. It is by this work of Christ that the gospel is brought into the world of fallen man. It is from this precious gospel, which is the pure and undefiled gift of God, that the Galatians had begun to turn to a different gospel. However, as will be seen in the next verse, this different gospel is no gospel at all. That's exactly right. There is only one truth in this matter, and the Galatians had turned from it. The work of the Judaizers, who have as yet not been introduced into the epistle, has had a damaging effect on the Galatians, and their false message continues to have the same damaging effect on countless souls today. Galatians is a vital epistle for understanding what the pure and undefiled gospel message is. Life application, grace indicates unmerited favor. If you have to do something to receive grace, then it ain't grace. Okay, um, I just had a thought in my head. What was it? No gospel at all. There's only one truth. And okay, I don't remember what I was going to say, so we're going to go on to one seven. One seven, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The New King James Version wisely departs from the older King James Version in their translation of verses six and seven. Notice the difference between the two. I'm going to read you first the New King James Version, and then the King James. Here's the New King James, verses 6 and 7. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Here's what the King James says. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. One says different, and then another, the other says another and another. Two entirely different words are translated as another by the King James Version. The first is heteros, another of a different kind. This stands in contrast to alos, another of the same kind. The King James Version confuses this. Should verse 6 be cited alone, which is not an uncommon thing for people to do, there could be a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. Thankfully, there are other versions one can refer to in order to get a fuller meaning of the intent of what is being said. If you, Let me read it again and see if it makes any sense to you after I've read it. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. It sounds like he's talking about the same thing when he's talking about two entirely different things. To a different gospel, which is not another. It's a different kind. And then let me read it again. One is of another a different kind. Another is another of the same kind. So you have a different gospel is a different gospel of another kind, the false gospel, which is not another. It's not even of the same kind. It's something completely different, if you understand what I'm saying there. Okay, so... His words show us that what was presented to the Galatians by the Judaizers was a different gospel, which was no gospel at all. 
He was so adamant against these people who were bringing in their false message that he calls them hoi tarasontis, the troublers. They are especially troublesome and are to be utterly rejected. There is one message of the good news found in Jesus Christ, and that is his, Jesus Christ's, his fulfilling the law and then annulling it through his sacrifice on Calvary. That is the gospel. I remember what I was going to say a minute ago, so I'm going to take you there just so you can remember what is the gospel. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The scripture said he was going to come, he was going to die for our sins, okay? And that he was buried, meaning he was fully dead, he was not just in a sleeping state, he wasn't in a swoon state, he was really dead, he was really buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Anything other than that is not the gospel. This is God incarnate paying the full penalty for man's sins, and it is eternal in nature. That is the gospel. Anything other than that is a false gospel. Okay? People that teach false gospels are heretics because they're teaching that which is not another at all. Okay? His words, I'll read it again, show us that what was presented to the Galatians by the Judaizers was a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. There is one message of the good news found in Jesus Christ, and that is his fulfilling the law and then annulling it through his sacrifice on Calvary. Paul notes in Romans 7 verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. In this, he was using a real life example to make a spiritual point about the law. In his continued explanation, he then says in verse 7, 6, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. The letter means the law of Moses. He's so clear. Paul is so precise about these things and how people can pick up the book of Galatians or refer to the book of Romans and say, Oh, I still need to observe the law of Moses is beyond me. It is literally incredible that people do this. I mean, I didn't know anything about Scripture. I was given a Bible by my mother after I met the Lord, and I sat in the back of the building, the uh, business that I had at the time, and I read it. And I got to the book of Galatians, and I thought this is the most basic, simple instruction that I've read yet. Out of the whole Bible, this is very basic. And that's why I love it, is because somebody as dumb as me could figure it out right away. You read this, and it is just so very simple. It's so basic. And how people can read it and come to all these different conclusions is just, it's appalling. But anyway, here we go. Um, uh, we have now been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. In other words, the gospel is that of grace. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf, and then he died, thus annulling. Annulling means completely ending. It is done. It is over. It is obsolete. He annulled the law. Let me take you to that, just in case you've never read that before. If you've never heard that before, then you've never heard any of my sermons, because I must repeat it 4,000 times a month in the sermons, but here it is. Verse 18, speaking of the law of Moses, for on the one hand, there is the annulling, the ending, the superseding, the done. It is out of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness 
and unprofitableness. It's done. That's what Paul is saying. That is confirmed here in the book of Hebrews. And then again, in verse 8, 13 of Hebrews, it says basically the same thing. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. It's done. It is annulled. It is obsolete. The, the first address was 7... 7.13. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, 7.18 and then 8.13. Yeah. Okay, and then the next one right over here in 10 verse 9. Hebrews 10 verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first. It's taken away. That is the law of Moses that he may establish the second. You can't have two concurrently running covenants. It's either one or the other. Either you're under the law or you're under grace, and that is it. The new covenant takes away the old. But if you have not come into the new covenant, the old remains, and you're stuck there, okay? That is what he's saying. I, I don't know how it can be twisted by people. I just don't understand it. Here we go. For all who believe in the sufficiency of his work, it is annulled. This is the gospel message. The Judaizers had come to the Galatians and were proposing a different gospel which was based on works of the law, which is an old, which is obsolete, which is taken away. This will be seen as we continue. It is these wicked people, and I say wicked. You go to the Hebrew roots churches, these are wicked teachers. They're not good people. They're not there to help you get freedom in Christ. They are there to put you into the bondage of the law. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying it very precisely, very clearly. I have no compunction about repeating it as well. Okay, these are wicked people who Paul speaks of with the words, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The word Paul uses for pervert is metastrepho. It indicates a complete turning from one thing to another, just from here to here, and there's no happiness between the two. To understand its sense, metastrepho, we can go to Acts chapter 2, and there in verse 20, it uses the same word. Acts 2, 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. <laughs> There's a complete changing. The change in the sun is complete from light to darkness. This is what happens when works of the law are reintroduced into the grace of Christ. Something entirely different results. The gospel of Christ is called what? Light. Obviously, if there's a complete changing, it is to darkness. We're going to be seeing that in the symbolism of this week's sermon and in the sermons in the weeks ahead. What happened at the giving of the law of Moses? Above Mount Sinai. Anybody? Fire, smoke. Everything spoke of judgment. It didn't speak of reconciliation. He spoke out of the fire. The fire is God's judgment. The smoke, it says smoke and obscurity. It's so dark that they can't see into it. Is that what Christ came to do, is to bring us darkness where we can't see anything? No. Paul says that he brings us the light of Christ. That's what we have. And so there's a complete changing between the law and grace. There's darkness, there's light, there's judgment, there's grace. This is exactly what this word is signifying to us. Read it again. The change in the sun is complete from light to darkness. This is what happens when works of the law are reintroduced into the grace of Christ. Something entirely different results, something which can only bring condemnation to those who pursue it. You cannot find salvation in the law of Moses. It is not there, and it will never be there, except as it is found in Christ's fulfilling of it for us. The law has to be fulfilled. Christ fulfilled it. He does it on our part. 
If we do not accept that, then we remain under the law and all we will find is condemnation. Life application. Paul lays out in advance of directly making his charges against the Judaizers the enormity, the enormity of the error which has come to Galatia. It is an error which continues on today when any precept of the law of Moses is reintroduced into the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Paul will use circumcision as the benchmark of what he means concerning reintroducing the law. But the precept stands true for any other precept of the law. Circumcision is the benchmark because it is the sign of the law. Without that, you're not a, a Jew, you're not under the law, etc., etc. That is the benchmark. But any other thing that you want out of the law can be used in exactly the same way. You cannot eat pork. Heresy. You must tithe. Heresy. We talked about that before class today. You must observe the Saturday Sabbath. Heresy. We cannot pick and choose what constitutes grace. Grace doesn't constitute anything except God's giving it to us and our receiving of it. We can only trust in the grace that is given through the work of Christ. So trust in Christ and in him alone for your salvation. After that, if you want to not eat pork, that is fine. That is a-okay. If you want to give 10 or 20 or 90% of your money to the church, that is fine too. I'm sure, sure whatever church you attend and they want to, you want to give them 90%, they'll be more than happy to take it from you. But you are not required to do that. It has to be from you willingly. Not because you were told to in order to be saved, because then you were falling back under something which is not the gospel. Okay, if you want to lay around all day on Saturday and do nothing, that is fine too. But if you are doing these things, expecting to earn God's favor and bring you salvation, you have fallen from grace. It's that simple. Yes. Two things. <laughs> Two things. J.C. Penney's, when he started J.C. Penney's, gave 90%. 90%. Yep. 90%. Okay. Distort is, is not a good word in here. Okay. Right? right? I don't know. Distort. You, you said it's completely changed. Right. Just, just, oh, yeah. Distort wouldn't be a good word. I wasn't sure what word you were talking okay. about. But yeah. It's a complete change. Yeah. So, what was the word? Metastrepho, I think. Yes. Okay. It's a complete change. To yeah. distort something just obscures it or yeah. kind of, yeah. I mean, to distort, you know, that's distorting. My face is still my face. It's just kind of a little bit distorted. Yeah. But to take my face and turn it around behind and you see the back of my head, that's a complete change. So I wouldn't say distort is a really great word. Why do you ask? Because the NASB has distort. Oh, well, the NASB probably should change that word then. <laughs> or they should say to distort means and put a footnote in there saying that this means a complete change. Because somebody might think of distort in that way. Yeah. I mean, to me, it doesn't. Distort yeah. means just, you know, yeah. Yeah, the more you talk, the more I knew that this was wrong. Yeah, it just, it doesn't sound right to me because to distort just means, you know, I could distort that chair by putting a little X, you know, coloring an X on it, but it's still a chair. It's still obvious what it is. This is a complete changing from what is intended. Okay, 1-8, I think that'll be our last one today because we've uh, uh, we've had some technical problems and this has got to be put onto the internet via, uh, what do you call it, uh, editing the video. And so uh, we'll probably make this our last verse. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be cursed. 
I, I can't think of anything more profound or pointed than what he just said there. I'll read it again. But if we, meaning Paul himself, if he came with the other apostles or any of the people that originally came with Paul, if we or an angel from heaven, and guess what? An angel from heaven showed up, talked to a guy named Muhammad, didn't he? An angel from heaven came and showed up and talked to a guy named Joseph Smith, didn't he? These people claim divine revelation from an angel in heaven. Can't be true because it's not what Paul is saying right here. You, you can know. You just go back to the source of most made-up religions, and you can know that they're made up without even knowing what the religion says. When, uh, what's his name, L. Ron Hubbard said, uh, I think I've talked to him about him before. L. Ron Hubbard was the most published author in human history. He'd written more novels than any person ever. And he said, I'm tired of writing for a penny a word. He says, religion is where the big money is. And he started Scientology. All you need to do is just go back to the source of it and you'll find out every time that it's false. Okay, here we go. I but showed it, that to, to the Mormons, the two guys riding the bikes, you know. Yeah. They come to the door and, and I showed them this verse. They had never seen this verse. They'd never before. seen that verse. I said, you know, your, your founder said an angel talked to him. This, this and it contradicts what this man yeah. says right here. And he says, we never saw that before. We're going to have to ask somebody. Oh. I said, ask the Lord. Read, read it. <laughs> read it and ask the Lord. Don't ask somebody in your denomination because they're just going to. Yeah, here we go. Paul now makes a most direct statement, asking his audience to think the words through carefully and with all of the weight of what they imply bearing over them. But, the word but is set against the words of the previous verses, which said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What Paul will write concerning delivering a different gospel gospel is exactly what the Judaizers had done. However, their actions will now be placed in comparison to other categories which bear even more weight and authority than they supposedly possessed. This comparison will draw out the enormity of the sin which they bear for their false gospel. Paul then says, but even if we, that's Paul's way of saying, if I or any other true apostle those who were commissioned by Christ Jesus personally were the ones entrusted with the gospel message. They were the highest authorities in humanity concerning this precious trust which had been delivered to them. This is the first comparison, and it is something that would seem unimaginable to occur. And yet, in verse 211, something will arise which could almost be considered in line with this impossible-to-imagine scenario. We're going to see it in just another couple of another chapter and a couple verses. Two eleven, we're going to see Peter falling away from the true gospel, the apostle Peter, and that's why Paul writes this book is to give us these examples and then to show an actual example, something he says right here in verse one eight, and then he will explain it and he'll show how Peter turned back to the truth. When it does, Paul will note his actions to correct the situation. From this human level of authority, Paul next raises the bar by saying, or an angel from heaven. We might be able to conceive that a man would presume to preach another gospel, but surely not so awesome an authority as an angel from heaven. And yet Paul's words echo down through the ages, even to our modern times, as a warning against the tricks of the devil as he sends out his demons, masquerading as heavenly angels in order to pervert the gospel. 
Or it could be that somebody's just a lunatic. But we'll assume that these people actually saw a real being and it was a, a spiritual being, an angel. Well, if it's an angel and it comes with another gospel, then it isn't an angel in the sense that we think of it as a demon, a fallen angel. So we'll just assume that that's actually what happened with these people. The religion of Islam was supposedly given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. No, no, not, not the Mormons, Gabriel. That was Muhammad. Muhammad received it from Gabriel. They call him Jibril in, in uh, Arabic. It is a religion which is contrary to Christianity, and it is a different gospel for sure, which is no gospel at all. Mormonism began by a supposed visit to Joseph Smith by the angel Moroni, or I'd like to call him Moron I. Anyway, Mormonism is likewise contrary to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a false gospel. Other false teachers, such as, anybody know who Ellen G. White is? Mm -hmm. Yes, Seventh-day Adventists. That's right. They have claimed heavenly visions and have, in turn, perverted the truth of the true gospel. Whether Ellen G. White actually saw some vision or not, it was not from God, because it is a false gospel. It is a heretical gospel, and she is a heretic. Mm -hmm. The list is not a short one, and it is to be warred against by those who hold to the truth of the gospel. And what is it that Paul warns against concerning these false apostles and false heavenly visitors? It is that they will, as he says, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. There is one gospel message. I just read it to you from 1 Corinthians. I can read it again in a minute. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He was born under the law. He lived out that law perfectly, and he died in fulfillment of that same law. In his death, the law of Moses was annulled, and in its place came a new covenant. The proof of this gospel is that Christ rose from the dead, prevailing over death. Paul clearly defines the gospel he preaches in 1 Corinthians 15. I read it to you a minute ago. It's especially in 3 and 4, but you can start in verse 1 and go down to verse 8, and that'll give you the background information as well. Let's do it just because we're here. We'll do it, and then we'll be done in a couple minutes. Let's see here. 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 1 for the background information. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he was, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part have remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. So he gave you the gospel and the background information. Okay, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And a new covenant has been established through his shed blood. It is a covenant of grace. No works of any kind are to be added into the gift which he offers. To pervert this gospel is to say that what he did was insufficient for salvation. In essence, it is to say, I don't trust Christ to fully save me. It is a slap in God's face, and it is the greatest of heresy. For such a false message, Paul says to let him be accursed, whether it is an apostle or even an angel from heaven who proclaims 
any different gospel, the pronouncement is the same. The word accursed or anathema in Greek means to be devoted to God. In this case, it is to be taken in a negative way. Such a person is to be devoted to God for the curse of God as set apart for destruction. In the Old Testament, we've seen it several times. We'll see it all the way through the Old Testament. It's comparable to the word harem. Okay, it's when something is accursed. God says that Jericho, the city, is accursed. Nothing is to be taken out of it. It is all devoted to God as a burnt offering. And somebody took a part of it, and people died because of it. Okay, it is accursed. What? What's that? Uh, Ai is the city, the next city. The name is Aachen, A-A-C-H-E-N, Aachen, or some people call him Aachen. But anyway, life application. Today, many people are following the Hebrew roots movement. Although this sounds great because Jesus was a Jew, and it's always good to know the background of any issue, they have taken it to dangerous extremes, reinserting the law and mandating that followers of Christ live as he lived, as a Jew, under the law of Moses. This is heresy. It's not bad doctrine, it is heresy, and it is exactly what Paul argues against. Why would anyone want to go back under the bondage of the law instead of trusting in the grace of Christ. The reason is that they do not trust the finished work of Christ. This and any other perversion of the true gospel is exactly what Paul condemns. Don't get swallowed up in such heresies. The law is fulfilled and we are under grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to come here. Even it's a little shorter Bible study today. We thank you that uh, we were able to get some verses done. And we just uh, pray that uh, whatever the uh, technical issues were with the uh, streaming, that those will get fixed and that we'll be able to have a uh, proper streaming on Sunday. But we leave that in your capable hands. You're the one that's in charge of all things. And so we just trust that uh, whatever happens, it is in your will. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the chance to meet here and to uh, get into your precious word. And we just pray that uh, everybody here will be safe on their uh, trip back home and that uh, they'll have a good weekend and that they'll show up at church somewhere and the people that watch this later that they will make an effort to show up at church somewhere as well and to worship you as they should knowing that you are the creator and you are infinitely worthy of our praise we love you and we do praise you and we do so in jesus name amen, amen.